in this class uh, about the life and work of uh, the Apostle Paul. And we had uh, last week begun discussing his first missionary uh, journey. He and Barnabas, you remember, Barnabas and Saul, uh, set forth from uh, Antioch of Syria, went down to, uh, uh, to the island of Cyprus, landing first on the eastern coast, Salamis, going through the island, ending up at Paphos, where uh, they encountered a man uh, by the name of Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul of, uh, of um, that place. Um, Cyprus was a Roman province. There were two kinds of Roman provinces, senatorial and imperial. And the senatorial provinces were ruled by proconsuls. And that's why we read of, uh, of that position at um, Paphos, Sergius Paulus. He summoned Paul, wanted to hear the word of God from him. And we also had been introduced to this, uh, this uh, magician, this false prophet, Elamus, who wanted to keep Sergius from the truth, wanted to hinder his uh, becoming a believer. And of course, we read about Paul smiting him with blindness for a time. In the 13th verse of Acts, uh, now Paul and his company set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. Uh, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. The city of uh, uh, Perga is in Pamphylia, obviously, and it's located um, uh, on the river Cestius, about seven and a half or eight miles in from the ocean. And uh, uh, we don't know why. Uh, the scriptures simply don't tell us why they chose to, to go in this direction after they left uh, uh, the island of Cyprus. But notice this, and, and remember, in connection with his encountering Sergius Paulus and, and speaking to him the word of God and Sergius Paulus becoming a believer, the statement is made, and Saul, who also is called Paul. And we made a couple of comments about that. This is the first time that in the scripture that he is referred to as Paul. And it's the last time he'll be referred to as Saul. Uh, and we've had some discussion about that name change. Last week after the class, Brother Barkley, Lawrence Barkley, gave me a paper that he had written some time ago on that, and it pretty much concurs with what I have told you. I really enjoyed reading it. He's always very thorough in his study and in his writings. But as Brother Barkley said, uh, there's no... There's no reason, no reference ever made to Paul's, to Saul's name being changed. All kinds of theories. One of the most popular theory is that that he, he, what happened here on the island of Cyprus and his meeting Sergius Paulus, and at this time his name was changed. But the scripture doesn't say that his name was changed there. And... Uh, 
And I only, not that it's that big a thing, but I only mention that um, as a point to illustrate how we need to be careful in our study of Scripture about making assumptions that, that for which there is no basis. That, that, that's just an assumption. Uh, I have told you that I am personally of the, of the belief and feeling that, that, he was named, that he was given both of these names at birth. Uh, his, he was a Jew of Jews, meaning his father and mother were Jewish people. They grew up speaking in their family settings, the, the uh, Hebrew language or the, the dialect of it that was spoken at, at, that, at that time. But he also grew up in, in, as we've seen, Tarsus of Cilicia, a Gentile city. And so he also spoke that language and learn something of that culture. And it's very, very likely and even probable, I think, that he was given both those names at that time. And it just simply says that he's now on this, his first missionary journey. He encounters here this Gentile, and he's about to move on into other areas where he will in, encounter many, many Gentiles, a lot of times predominantly Gentiles, and it, and it just might have been a, a, the proper thing, a, a, a matter of convenience for him to, to start to be referred to by, by the name Paul rather than Saul. But the whole point is, let's just be careful in assuming uh, something because what happened is sometimes we start assuming things and then before you know it, these assumptions became, become a, a matter of absolute unquestionable truth. And again, I think it's good to introduce that on something like this that's not ultimately significant with regard to our salvation, but to point out the, the, the importance of, of carefully studying the Scripture for yourself, and you'll read all kinds of theories. I invite you and encourage you to read what other people have done, especially those who've had the time to study, maybe in their original languages or familiar with the history of the time that helps uh, you know, bring out, helps us to better understand what's being said. But even those people can be wrong. So read what they have to say, but then use your own common sense and compare it against other things that are said as well as your own thing. But the second thing that I want to notice here is from this time on, Paul, uh, Saul, now Paul, assumes the leadership prominence in this relationship to this extent. Did you notice that? To this extent, it says that now Paul and his companions, instead of saying, as we have been reading, Barnabas and Saul, it now says, and Paul and his companions. So he's definitely assumed the, the, the leading role, as it were, in this, and, uh, and so they, they move on to Perga of uh, Pamphylia. It also tells us that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is another example that, of what we just talked about. I don't know why John left him. Um, we, we just don't know why John left him. Now, now it, it, it seems that Paul um, uh, censored him in a way 
in a statement found in Acts 15 and verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So, uh, but again, we don't know. He, 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 he might have withdrawn from them for a number of reasons, uh, illness or, or whatever. Uh, a prominent thought is, and this is something to consider, but again, we can't be sure, it is thought by many that he feared the journey that was ahead of them. I read one or two uh, commentators in particular who were familiar with those times and those areas, and one said that Paul and his company would never again, would never enter into any location that was fraught with more perils. You remember he refers in 2 Corinthians in his own words, he talked about perils of robbers and perils of thieves and such like. This, this person said that, that, that he would never enter a location that was wrought with more of that sort of thing than the highlands of Pisidia that they would pass through. And so uh, they would be aware of that, perhaps had been warned of it, and John Mark may have just become fearful. I can tell you from my own personal experience, um, I'm an old country boy, and, and until 1966, I had never been outside the United States. Uh, uh, and it really hadn't been out of the state of Alabama very much that I, that I can remember. And we went on a, I went with a group of men on a mission trip to Nigeria one summer. We stayed there all summer long. And I can tell you that on a number of occasions, this old country boy felt uneasy and uh, afraid. Uh, another time, a few years later, I went down with a buddy of mine uh, he came by to see me one time, and, and he is, was at a congregation where they were doing this uh, 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 what do you, uh, Bible study through mail. Uh, Tommy, you and your wife, I think, used Yeah, huh? Yeah. And, and a lot of people had taken those things and filled them out. And a number, a number comes to my mind, I believe he told me, he said, Billy, there are 100 people there who've completed this course and are requesting baptism. And uh, there's no minister there to go see them and talk to them. No, you know, we, they knew of only 18 people on the entire island of Grenada, I'm talking about, Grenada. And, uh, and uh, knew of only 18 people who were New Testament Christians that they knew of. So he got into my conscience, and we made plans, and we went down. And I don't like flying anyway, those of you who know me. And Grenada's a little old island about 35 miles or maybe... 50, 60 miles long and 20 miles wide or something. And we flew into this place, and I thought we were about to crash because all I could see, we were getting closer and closer, and all I could see was water. And just when I was about to panic, I began to see a little grass in the water, and then all of a sudden we touched down. <laughs> but uh, fearful, fearful. And so I can understand, uh, perhaps, why... John did that, but we don't know. We don't know why uh, he turned back, but he did. Now, let's continue reading. Yes. Uh, 
Okay. I hadn't thought of that. His nature. Yeah. Okay. Verses 14 and 15 of Acts 13. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch. Of, see, I don't know why they left. Nothing is said about them preaching in Perga. That doesn't mean they didn't preach in Perga, but nothing said about it. Also, interestingly, lest I forget to say it later, on their return to Perga, they didn't, there's nothing said about them preaching there, and in fact, they didn't stay there long. Uh, it, it, but went from there on down to Atala. So it almost suggests, again, be careful, but it almost suggests that 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 they that there was there was that that area was not receptive, and so rather than than to wait in an area where there was little possibility of doing much good while waiting on the boat, they went on down to Italia. I don't know any of that, but anyway, that's that's interesting. But we do know that they went from Perga, came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say on. Now this is interesting. This passage gives us a little insight into the activities of the synagogue and the worship of the synagogue. I don't know if you've read, studied much about it. It's interesting. This week on one of these cooler and rainy nights, get you a good book or commentary or uh, dictionary and, and look this up. But we're not absolutely certain where the synagogues originated or when. Now, a lot of people and most people, most of the commentators seem to think that they, are, they uh, came about during the time of exile, although there are some who believe that they were in existence prior even to that. But at, we know that by the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, there, there, these meetings, by the way, the word synagogue simply means a place of meeting. And these meetings were occurring, uh, so it, it, it seems that, that during the exile and following the exile, the synagogue worship uh, was refined and tuned up and, and, and maybe formalized a little bit more. The The in every city where there was any substantial number of, of Jews, there would be a synagogue. By the way, I read somewhere that in Jerusalem there were 400 and something synagogues. It's hard for me to believe, but I read that. I, I don't know if it's true. I'm just telling you what I read. Lots of synagogues. But, but there were synagogues and sometimes several synagogues in every city where there were Jews. These synagogues would be built, well, they'd be paid for Sometimes they'd be paid for by the district. I assume uh, that would be something like the state or the county, maybe in an area where there were a significant number of Jews and or prominent Jews, the people in the area would pay for the building of the of the synagogue. But more often, it would be they would be paid for by some individuals uh, or maybe by a, a group of, of Jews in the area or by an individual, and sometimes even a Gentile. Luke chapter 7, you remember the story of the centurion who had the, a servant that was sick unto death and, and he sent word through the disciples of Jesus that, that I, I have Jesus come and heal my servant, you remember? And they pleaded with Jesus, said, come because this is a good man. He has 
He supports us and he has built for us a synagogue. So this uh, Jewish uh, centurion uh, had built that synagogue. But they would build them and they could be really nice and not so nice and even in some instances not a building as such but more of an arbor. Uh, And I also read that, that where there was a, a, a sure enough synagogue, it, it, there, it was a requirement that there must be at least 10 male Jews in order for there to be a synagogue. They would be built somewhat like this, always in such a way that upon entering the synagogue and praying in the synagogue, you'd be facing toward what? Jerusalem. And at the front of the synagogue, which would be this Jerusalem end, is the way they referred to it, the eastern end of the synagogue, they would have the ark or the chest, similar to the Ark of Covenant, and where they kept the, uh, the, the scrolls of the law and the prophets from which they read. And then closest to that were the chief seats. You remember in Scripture, the Pharisees and the rulers desired the chief seats of the synagogue. And most uh, the, the men and women were, were separated. This, uh, again, reminds me of Nigeria. When we'd preach in Nigeria, we'd go and visit these churches, and, and, uh, and, and if it was a lot of them had made their own church buildings out of uh, mud stones and so forth, and the men would sit on one side, and the women would sit on the other side, and the children would gather up the front, right in front of the pulpit, and there would be a man there with a stick, about this long, and if the children began to cut up, he'd just tap them on the head. <laughs> and uh, so, in the synagogue, they had this. There, there would be a, a raised platform, uh, kind of in the center, up near the front. And on that, sometimes there would be a, what we would refer to as a pulpit, and, and, and that's where the scrolls would be placed. There was, uh, I forget the name of the individual, but the, the, the well-established synagogues had a custodian-type person who looked after the synagogue, but he did more than that. He would announce on, on Friday the coming of the Sabbath. And uh, then... The next day, the close of the uh, after the Sabbath, the close of the Sabbath, he would be the one who would take the scrolls out of the chest and put them on the uh, things that would be read. Now, there was a custom. There were about five things they would do in synagogue worship. They would there would be prayers. There would be the singing of psalms. There would be uh, blessings, um, and then the reading from the scripture and the comments on. Nehemiah talks about give the sense of it, of what was read. So something would be read for scripture and someone would get up to give the sense of it, to, to, to explain it and, and to talk about it, somewhat like we do in a, in a, in a Bible study. They would read from, from, there would be two readings in each meeting. One reading from the Torah, from the Pentateuch, and then one from the rest of the of the writings. And, and some commentators think uh, that we can be somewhat sh- uh, sure of when Barnabas, Saul, Paul and Barnabas was there 
what time of the year. Don't know what year exactly, although remember now, we've said this trip was probably somewhere between the years of 45 and 49, lasting uh, most of that or part of that, two or three years during that time. Uh, one reading from the Pentateuch, one from the other. And the Pentateuch was divided up. Well, the, the uh, Babylonian Jews divided the Pentateuch up into 150 sections. And it would be, they'd be read in that order, somewhat like someone reading through the Bible in a year or in three years would read a certain... They, and then they'd start all over it. So they would go through the, uh, the Pentateuch every three years. Uh, the the, the uh, other uh, Jews, uh, I forget how they were referred to, they would divide it up into one year. So every year you'd read through the Pentateuch. And so certain scriptures would be read at certain times of the year. And we can know what they were reading from because Paul, the, the one commenting, would always begin at the place that they had read from, see? So based on what uh, Paul says in the beginning, we can know that they were reading that day from Deuteronomy chapter 1, about verses 30, 31, somewhere in there, because he makes reference to God putting up with them, <laughs> nourishing them, or tolerating them, whichever translation you want during the wilderness wandering. So if that's the case, then they were there on what would be for us late August or early, uh, late July or early August in, in, in the year. Just kind of interesting to, to me to think about things like that because it helps to, I think, make it more real and whatever. So, so Paul, uh, uh, so they... Uh, um, I, did we read 14? Yeah. No. Went in the synagogue, verse 14, and they sat down, and the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, say to the people, say on. That was their, uh, uh, that was their um, practice. Uh, uh, you know, a local person might be called upon, but if there were visitors... And you remember Jesus during his ministry was asked on a set, on occasions to make comment on the scripture reading. And so this was a practice now that that Paul and Barnabas would use throughout their, their work. Wherever they went, if there was a synagogue, they entered into the synagogue. And this gives us insight into how they were often able to, to get to the ears of the people there, be able to speak speak to them because unsuspectingly they would be asked to comment and they would start. And so I've, I've taken a lot more time I wanted to because I wanted us to see because as I said last week, the speech that Paul gives on this occasion gives us, I think, an idea, an indication of the kind of preaching he would do, especially when he would go into, into, into synagogues and speak. So Paul stood up, verse 16, Monitoring with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Um, he stood up in the manner of the Greeks. When they spoke, they would stand up, sometimes walk around, you know. Maybe if they had a group following them. And, but they would stand. The Jews, on the other hand, more frequently than not, would sit when they were, when they were, were speaking. Uh, uh, and uh, 
And so Paul uh, begins to uh, speak to them on this occasion. And it's interesting to notice uh, how he progresses. He begins by talking about the history of, the, of Israel. And this, of course, was a theme that was, that was dear to their hearts. They loved the, the history of their people, and it was a, a sure way to secure the favor of, of those in attendance. And then he moved on to talk about David, their hero king, and, uh, and the pride that every Jew had in David. And, and then he talked about the promise that God had made to David. And uh, from that promise, he proceeds to talk about, uh, talk about the Christ. He shows wisdom here. Um, he does hear what he will later do in Athens. He begins by talking to the people about something that would kind of incline them to be more favorable to what he had to say. And, 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 and that's what he's, he's, uh, he's doing here. If he had started out right off the bat talking about Jesus of Nazareth and da-da-da and saying some of the things right up front that he'll say near the end, he probably would have turned a lot of them off, closed their ears. Many of them are going to close their ears anyway, but even more would have closed their ears if he had begun that way rather than, than waiting. This expression, men of Israel and you that fear God, is an expression that you'll, he'll, you'll see a lot uh, in, in, his, uh, in the writings regarding him and his work. Of course, men of Israel refers to the Jews. You who fear God refers to the Gentiles who had come to believe in God and uh, perhaps proselytes uh, and, and the like. Verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our father, our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And about uh, 40 years he put up with them. This is that expression. It comes from Deuteronomy 1, 30 and 30, 31. Uh, uh, English Standard Version says put up with them. Some of the other translations use the expression nourished, which is a little more polite, but he did nourish them, but he, he put up with them too, didn't he, during that uh, 40 years. Uh, and uh, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Uh, all this took place about 50 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel. Now, here's a little bit of a difficult passage, and I don't want to get into it this morning. It's too detailed and not really pertinent to what we're doing. But in 1 Kings 6, in verse 1, you have this reading. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of God. So uh, in 1 Kings 6 and 1, we read that from the time they came out of Israel, Israel to the time that Solomon began building the temple, which was in the fourth year of his reign, was 480 years. Now that doesn't match up exactly with um, uh, what, we, what you read here in, uh, in uh, uh, Acts 13 and verse 20, especially the way it reads in, in, uh, 
in the English Standard and in some of the other translations. A Revised Standard and the American Standard renders it differently. Those translations are, are, uh, are supposedly based on better manuscripts. I'm a little bit surprised that the English Standard goes back to uh, a, a rendering more uh, of the old style. But, but there are, there are, uh, you can, there are ways to understand this. And uh, so you might on your own just want to read about that. It's not really a contradiction. It's one of those that appears to be a contradiction, but uh, there are explanations that, that make, it, make it clear. Verse 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. He served for 40 years. We, the Old Testament doesn't tell us this. We learned this in the New Testament. And when he had re <coughs> removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Uh, so the Lord goes after and seeks this young shepherd and puts him on the throne, and he refers to, them, to him as a man after his own heart. This language does not occur exactly in, in the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament does not say specifically that David was a man after his own heart, as it does here. But it does say this in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, referring to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And uh, uh, so he's, he says the Lord has sought out. So he's saying here, Samuel said, the Lord is going to seek someone that, that's uh, one that's, uh, you know, after his own heart. Uh, at, he, so he says that's what he's looking for, but he does not say until we read here in the New Testament that David was an individual who was a man after his own. doesn't mean that he was perfect, of course, without mistake, but it does mean that he was, instead of being uh, stubborn-minded and disobedient like Saul had been, he, he was one who would seek to do all the will of the Lord. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he's getting closer and closer now to the real object, to the, to the heart of what he wants to say. He's talked about David, their, their, their uh, great king, and he's now referring to the promise that God had made to, of the seed of David, raise up one who would be the Savior. Of course, those <coughs> promises are found throughout the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, Isaiah, Zechariah, number of places. Uh, and uh, uh, so what he's saying is, and he's going to bring this to a conclusion, this was the source of the most cherished hope that the Israelites had. For centuries they had been looking for the Messiah, this promised Messiah, uh, who would come from the stock of David. And so uh, Paul is referring to that, and now he's going to hone it in even more. Verse 25, and uh, 
John was finishing his course. He said, <coughs> uh, I left out a verse. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance for, uh, to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose I am? Or who do you suppose I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandal of whose uh, feet I'm not worthy to un untie. So he brings in John. First, he refers to his ministry of, of preparation, preparing the way for the Lord. But then he concludes by referring to what he said specifically about the coming Messiah, that, that, that he actually said that the, the, that one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to to tie uh, uh, the, his sandals. This, of course, is a reference to the, to the uh, 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 Messiah. Then verse 26. He, he kind of briefly steps away from his line of reasoning. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and of course they love this to hear this. You remember, these are the people who thought that just by virtue of being children of Abraham, they were guaranteed a uh, uh, place in heaven. So, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this Savior. He, it seems that he detects some favorable emotion uh, in his hearers at this time and uh, maybe sees some sympathy on their part toward the message that, he is, that he's uh, been speaking. And so he steps aside just a bit and speaks to them in this very warm way about their ancestry and of the promise. But he gets right back in the verse, next verse to what he was uh, aiming for. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him and nor understand the, the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So now, as we talked about a while ago, what they did every Sabbath in the, in the synagogues, they would read from the Scriptures. But even though they read from the Scriptures, they didn't accept what they read every Sabbath but instead they put, it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 5, verse 37. You remember what he said? You search the scriptures. Anything wrong with that? For in them you think you have eternal life. Anything wrong with that? Isn't eternal life, the way of eternal life to be found in scripture? But they, are the, uh, they testify of me, and you will not believe me. So uh, they read the scriptures, but they didn't accept them and didn't understand them, didn't accept them, and, uh, had, and they rejected him and condemned him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And verse 29, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So, not uh, this, this, this uh, that that Jesus was the Messiah was well documented. Is what he's been saying here. 
and then he goes on to talk about how that they that what they did with regard to Christ was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, you may notice here an interesting thing, just a, a little tiny thing. It says in the latter part of verse 29, and they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Notice no distinction is made between those who put him to death and those who took him down and put him in the tomb. Who took him down and put him in the tomb? Joseph and Nicodemus, friends of Jesus. But no distinction is made between those who put him to death and who took him. What, what does it mean? It probably just simply means this. They did take him down, but they did it at, with the approval. They had to get approval, you remember, from authorities to do it. And so in, in that sense... Uh, you know, it was all it was all done for them. Not that Nicodemus and 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 uh, and uh, Joseph were part and parcel to that, but it was just all uh, a part of his being uh, put to death. Now the speaker proceeds to the climax of his argument, uh, and he talks about a proof of Jesus' messiahship, which is. Uh, more conclusive, if that's possible, than what he's already said, than what he talked about, about the fulfillment of prophecy and, uh, and the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 30, God raised him from the what? From the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up uh, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. In his letter to the Corinthians, what we know as the first Corinthian letter, chapter 15, he will categorize or list, if you remember, those to whom Christ appeared after his death. The apostles two or three times, uh, those on the road to Emmaus, uh, and 500 people at one time, and, and last of all he said to, to me, number of appearances after his resurrection. And he said all these people are still witnesses, telling people, witnesses to the fact that he was raised from the dead. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, this day have I forgot, uh, begotten you. I, I, I've said this before, and, and I, it's, I just don't think it's possible for us to fully understand and appreciate how one in that day, in that time, would feel to hear these words. And this, has, this he has fulfilled to us. In Christ. In other words, what he's saying is this Jesus, this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the promise made uh, to you through David. He's the long-awaited Messiah. 
and uh, and so he, uh, he he comes to that to that point. He's the uh, realization of your most cherished uh, cherished hopes. Um, this uh, expression um, today I have begotten you has caused a little concern for some com commentators. This expression begotten you they think couldn't refer to his resurrection and so they they refer to this and also the raising up that was mentioned prior to that as referring to his incarnation but that's not the case at all um, uh, it, it, it most certainly in a number of places in the New Testament the expression is used to refer to his resurrection in Hebrews 5 in verse 5 Paul said Christ glorified not himself to be made a priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son today, I have begotten you. All right, there's that expression. And he's, he's using it when, with reference to Christ and his becoming a priest. But as Christ could not be priest until after he died as a victim and was prepared to enter heaven with his own blood, this has to be a reference to what? To his, to his resurrection. Because Christ could not be a priest prior to that. Well, there are many other passages that we could refer to as well. He's called, he's called the first begotten from the dead. He's referred to as the firstborn from the dead. And so the concept of the first, my begotten son is not referring to his resurrection is not uh, opposed to Scripture. Verse 34, I know the bell fixed ring again. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not <clears throat> let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul knew that, that some would say that this reference about not seeing corruption, might, maybe it refers to, to, to David himself. But Paul here, just as Peter did in Acts 2, uh, reminds them that after serving the purpose that God had raised him up for as king of Israel, he died and he was buried and his body did seek, uh, seek corruption. But Christ... Uh, was raised from the dead and did not see corruption. Well, probably as much time as we'll be able to spend on that, but I wanted to kind of look at it so that we would have, because <clears throat> as we continue our studies of Paul and his travels, we'll kind of have in mind the kinds of things that he would probably say, especially when he was addressing uh, a Jewish audience. And two things. Some would be wonderfully happy uh, thrilled to hear that the promised Messiah had actually come, that their long-awaited hopes were now realized. They would be overjoyed. They would be receptive. We're going to read about that next week. While others would thrust from them, and that's a, 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 a quotation of the 46th verse, some would thrust from them the word of God and, and judge themselves by so doing to be what? unworthy of the gospel. Okay, thank you.